our final night in Ruthober, and we'll celebrate Ruthober Fest together here in a minute. No uh, Reformation celebration. Um, I really enjoy this book, and uh, this is like the final culminating, exciting chapter, the final act of uh, the story of Ruth. The story of Ruth is written in four chapters, and they really separate into nice pieces, actually, and nice acts, different acts in the story. Um, It's a story that we'll look at together, and when I say story, I don't want you to hear false. Story is a genre, and it's a Hebrew narrative, and, um, but when we read a story in the Bible, we don't read it like a history book. That's the difference I'm trying to make. We don't read it like a history book. We don't read it and say, here's the events that happened. Now what can we learn from it? We read it and say, what is the author trying to get across to us? What's he trying to teach us? What is he showing us in this text? So we look for things like repetition in the story. Things repeat themselves. Then he's trying to draw attention to it. We look for... Uh, things like unneeded words, like why did he put that there? It seems like he didn't need that part. We'll see that here in a minute, actually. He didn't need that part. Uh, why did he put that there? It's to, dr- to draw attention to it. Um, then we look for speech as well. Speech shows um, a lot about the character's character, is how I like to say it. Just easy for me to remember on the same word twice. Uh, it shows you a lot about the character's character. What is this person really thinking? What's going on in his mind? And uh, the author shapes it in that particular way for us to understand. Now, this story we've seen so far has been about tragedy and bitterness. We've seen loyalty. We've seen God's sovereignty. We've seen some relief. We've seen some romance, some redemption, rescue. And tonight we'll see even royalty. So let's get a running start. Uh, This story is about a man named Elimelech. Elimelech is going to show up again. Elimelech, uh, the story starts with him. He marries somebody named Naomi. Naomi and Elimelech move from Bethlehem to Moab. And because there is a famine, they move there. And then Naomi's husband, Elimelech, dies. After they have had two sons. Their two sons marry to Moabite women. One named Orpah, and one named Ruth. Then, Naomi's sons die. So, Naomi decides she's going to go back to, uh, to Bethlehem because there's food there now. And Naomi, Naomi is bitter about the tragedy that has struck her. Orpah and Ruth, they say, we're going back with you. We love you, we care about you, we're going back with you. But Naomi insists so, insist that they return back to their homeland. Your, your husbands have died. Go back to your people. So, Orpah returns to her own land and her own people. But Ruth shows this intense, loving kindness. And stays with Naomi. Returns with Naomi. And Naomi, at this point, is so bitter that she would rather be called Mara, which means bitter. She's bitter about what has happened. She's bitter about her husband dying and her sons dying and her being left seemingly with nothing. Ruth decides to go back with her. She decides to be a channel of God's blessing to Naomi. 
And we're going to see just about that. Then, in chapter 2, Ruth interacts. Uh, Ruth suggests going to, to get grain from a field. And it just so happens, the text says, it just so happens that she comes across the field of Boaz. She decides to glean there. And Boaz happens to be one of Elimelech's, um, one of Naomi's relatives of the clan of Elimelech. Boaz interacts with Naomi, I mean with Ruth, and he has already heard of the kindness that Ruth has shown to Naomi, and he's very impressed and very thankful. So he pours on blessing, bread, wine, roasted grain, got enough to fill her up and to have extra to bring home to Naomi. Then he piles on 30 pounds of barley to take home to Naomi as well. So Naomi, the bitter one, after this is ecstatic when Ruth returns with all this food. The Lord's providing, right? And then she's even more excited. She's beside herself when she finds out that this is all from a man named Boaz, who is a relative. Then Ruth continues to glean week after week after week until the barley harvest is finished and then until the wheat harvest is finished. And then she continues to live with her mother-in-law. And that's the end of chapter 2. Is that it? They got their food all set from Boaz and now they just live? But no, the story goes on. Naomi concocts a scheme. We talked about last week. She seems to place in this scheme our two virtuous characters in a compromising situation. So it would seem. Ruth and Boaz are meant to meet at night. And Naomi has the idea that they would marry. Ruth, in the chapter 3, is shown to act rightly, as we would only expect, but still we feared. And Boaz acts with integrity in the middle of the night. Naomi wants Boaz to marry Ruth right there, and Ruth is ready, it seems. But Boaz says, there is a nearer kinsman redeemer. Remember we talked about what that means? A kinsman redeemer. So um, when family members die, uh, when, when a husband dies, a family member of the husband is asked to redeem the woman. Maybe marry her or whatever it might be and uh, take on the, uh, the field. Now, Boaz says, though, we're not going to get married because there's a nearer kinsman redeemer than he. He doesn't have the right to. He acts with integrity. So Boaz needs to check with this guy to see if this guy would, um, would redeem. So here we come to Act 4. Act 4. Uh, I see this. I'm going to take this in two parts. Um, part 1 is Boaz takes action. And part 2 is a redeemer is born. Part 1 goes from verses 1 to 12, and part 2 goes from verses 13 to 22. Now, like I said last week, there are similarities between chapters 1 and 4, and there are similarities between chapters 2 and 3. In chapter 2, you see a progression of events, and the similar kind of progression of events happen in chapter 3. And chapter 3 builds on chapter 2 in order to intensify it. The same sort of thing is happening with chapter 1 and chapter 4. You're going to see some similarities from chapter 1 and chapter 4. You'll probably pick out more than these, but here's, here's a couple of them. Do you remember Orpah? 
in chapter 1. She acts as a, a literary foil to Ruth. What it is, it, it's a setup. Ruth, Orpah is a setup in the story. Here's Orpah who's willing to go, but then she turns back in order to accentuate the kindness of Ruth. Remember that with chapter 1? Something similar is going to happen here in chapter 4. In chapter 1, Ruth's kindness is brought to the forefront. In chapter 4, we're going to see something similar. In chapter 1, there's death and bitterness. And in chapter 4, death and bitterness get turned on their heads. So let's take a look. Boaz takes action. Chapter 4, verse 1 through 12. In chapter 2, the beginning of chapter 2, who takes action at the beginning of chapter 2? Ruth does. In chapter 3, remember Ruth is like, I'm going to go and glean in the field. In chapter 3, Naomi takes action. She says, look, here's what we're going to do. Ruth, you're going to go and do this. You're going to get together with Boaz. This is going to happen. Now in chapter 4, Boaz takes action. He steps up to the plate. So look at verse 1. Now Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there. And behold, the Redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken came by. So Boaz said, turn aside, friend. Sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. Now, um, let me give you a little background on the gate. If you have, like, your chain link fence gate in mind when you picture the gate, it's the, it's the wrong picture. So when you think of a gate at this time, think of, like, um, a good-sized structure. Not a structure to keep chickens out of your yard, or in your yard, whichever. <laughs> if your neighbors have chickens, out of your yard. <laughs> uh, no, not to keep chickens out, or in. I don't know what I'm saying. All right, but it's, it's, usually, it's usually quite the structure the gate system is. Uh, sometimes there's, like, lookout t- towers, and normally, like, a series of rooms. A series of rooms where um, court was to take place. This is where they would go ends up being kind of a meeting place, a meeting place of minds, a meeting place of ideas, and a meeting place of law. And then look what it says here, and it seems kind of out of the blue, where you have Boaz, he goes to the gate and he sits down, and then, behold, the Redeemer. Like, he says, look, like, whoa, look, it's the Redeemer. The Redeemer, who Boaz was just talking about, and he says, um, Behold. Why does he say behold here? It almost seems out of place. It presents, what it does is it's presented in the story rather dramatically. Uh, My Hebrew professor said it's a dramatic disjunctive. It's It's like this. Boaz sits down, like to wait for something, and then the near kinsman redeemer just shows up. He's like, look, it's him. So it does a couple of, that, that turn of phrase there does a couple of things. Um, first, it, it, it expresses the surprise that Boaz would have. Like he just, it seems like he just sat down and there he is. And it draws our attention to this new character, behold the Redeemer. But more importantly, I, I think, it's, it presents a um, just happenstance scene. He sits down, and there's the guy. What are the chances? It just, it harkens back to chapter 2. It just so happened, it seems. There he is. Pure coincidence, right? Or is someone else at work in this? 
He says to them, turn aside, friend, put friend in quotation marks, and he says, sit down. The word translated friend here is an interesting word. So many translations will translate that. You might have a different translation in there. Um, some translations will, will say, and he called him by name. Okay? But I would submit to you that that translation, and he called him by name, um, seems to be precisely what the author did not mean to do. It seems like that word friend, it's, it's almost like saying, um, uh, what did you say? Turn aside, guy. You know, come sit down. Like, that's what it's like. It's like, like if anybody has the NET Bible, NET Bible, they do a fantastic job with some translation work. Their notes are really helpful. This is as an aside. The translation that they use, John Doe. That's in our Bible. <laughs> it's, but in other words, he's saying, like, he's not giving this man a particular name. And he's being so dramatic about this. So, like, my translation would be something like, hey, buckaroo. <laughs> like, it'll be, you know, uh, it'll be, uh, hey, come over here, buddy. You know, like, turn aside. I, I had a, there's a, a guy um, that I know uh, who should know my name. You know, at, I, he, I don't see him very much anymore, but uh, I would see him a lot. And um, he's the guy, you ever, you ever forget someone's name and you call him something like, and he would always call me. He's like, hey, guy. <laughs> like, hey. <laughs> uh, so um, that was my name for a while. Um, but really, it's almost like calling him Mr. No Name. This is him. Um, the irony about this, though, that comes up in the story is that the author not giving him a name, where in a story where names seem to be really important, and he is the one, the kinsman redeemer, who's supposed to perpetuate the name. You see that down in, um, uh, at the end of verse 5, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. It comes up again later. Mr. No-Name is supposed to perpetuate the name of Elimelech. Verse 2. And he took ten men of the elders of the city and said, Sit down here. So they sat down. Then he said to the redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. There he is. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not, tell me that I may know, for there is no one besides you to redeem it, and I come after you. And the Redeemer says, I will redeem it. So, first of all, what's interesting here is that Naomi has... A field. It seems that Naomi has a field where, as before, she was uh, portrayed as being completely destitute. But what was going on here is she's actually selling the rights to redeem a field. She has the right to purchase a field, but she doesn't, isn't able to, so she's selling the rights to. She's still destitute, and she still um, has this right and needs money, so she's deciding to sell the right is what's going on here. And then the guy, remember the guy? The guy says... Yeah, I'll redeem it. Wait, really? 
You'll redeem it? I thought, I thought this was like Boaz and Ruth's story. Boaz and Ruth supposed to get together. Like, why are, who is this guy? Guy, Mr. No Name, stepping in and taking, like doing this. So Boaz, he decides to make a clarification. Boaz, smart. So, Boaz says in verse 5, Then Boaz said, The day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth, the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. So Boaz clarifies what he means. If you, if you want to buy the field, then you have the responsibility to perpetuate the name of the dead, Elimelech, and take Ruth as your wife. So the guy reconsiders. The Redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption yourself, for I cannot redeem it. So he says, I, 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 can't, I can't redeem it for myself. Um, he decides that he can't do it. It's interesting to note that there's an explicit mention of for myself. And this should contrast. So this is, remember I said that Orpah was a setup for Ruth? Well, this near kinsman redeemer is a setup for Boaz. He's a literary foil for Boaz. This would, he says, for myself, this would contrast with Boaz, who always seems to be operating in the interest of others. Remember from chapters 2 and 3? He's always giving to others and uh, uh, serving others and acting in integrity for the sake of others in chapter 3. So, while not legally bound, the kinsman redeemer, the nearer kinsman redeemer, he could accept the moral responsibility. He's not legally bound, but he could accept the moral responsibility for Elimelech's estate. He could redeem the field, marry Ruth, and ensure the well-being of Naomi. And this would have been an honorable thing. Like Orpah, it would have been honorable, though not legally bound to go with Ruth, it would have been an honorable, or go with Naomi, it would have been an honorable thing uh, like Ruth did. This near kinsman redeemer pushes Boaz to the forefront. He could have legitimately declined the responsibilities and let Boaz take them, especially since Boaz said he would. It's like, I'll do it. So he's not looked at, looked upon as being totally negative. He decided that he would decline. And why did he decide to decline? He says, lest I impair my own inheritance. Again, maybe a hint of self-focus here, but he may actually be thinking of who his inheritance would go to, and splitting that might be complicated and costly. But consider what he has here. It might have been a really good business move for him to not decide to take the field. We'd have have the cost of redeeming the property, plus the cost of marrying Ruth, plus the cost of providing for a widow. And he he decides, I cannot do this for whatever reason. But it draws our attention to the kindness of Boaz. Those things are no-brainers for him. Then, there's these two verses that give us a little background here. In verses 7 and 8, they give us a little background, but with a purpose. Okay, so look at 7 and 8. Now, this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging. To confirm a transaction, the one drew off his sandal and gave it to the other, and this was the manner of attesting in Israel. So the Redeemer said to Boaz, Buy it for yourself he drew off his sandal. 
he has a purpose here in having this, this background inf- information that probably would have been seemingly unnecessary to the original readers. The background information um, uh, here sets up something. It slows the narrative pace, it extends the climax of the story, and it builds to this like amazing conclusion. If it would have passed by uh, quickly, the moment would have, would have been lost. So imagine like the, the dramatic ending of a movie, how things like slow down, there's like slow motion in this, maybe some repetition even, like different angles. And so he's going to slow the narrative down with this background information, and then you have this conclusion. Boaz redeems. Look at verse 9. Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, you are witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Chilion and to Malon. Also, Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Malon, I have bought to be my wife to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among the brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are witnesses this day. So, it's happening. Finally happening. Boaz redeems, it seems, right? There's repetition there. To perpetuate the name of the dead. The name of the dead may not be cut off. And that name is Elimelech, which means, my God is king. My God is king will not be cut off. The king will reign. Then the witnesses speak in verse 11. Look at verse 11. Then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you act worthily in Ephrathah and and be renowned in Bethlehem. And may your house be like the house of Perez, who Tamar bore to Judah because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. Think about what comes to mind when, the, when those names are mentioned in the scriptures. It just so happens that our, our, we're reading through uh, Genesis together as a family, and we read all the parts, uh, and we are about, our next chapter we're supposed to read in Genesis is the Judah and Tamar story. It comes at like the, it, it's squeezed in in the beginning of the Joseph narrative. Think about what would come to mind. Um, the witnesses recognize that this is, this redemption is a good kind thing. They see the kindness of Boaz. They know that he will have a house that's worthy. Remember that word from chapter one, uh, chapter two, verse one. Then we saw it again in chapter three. I think verse eleven. Yeah, verse eleven. It was used of Boaz in chapter two, verse one, and then Ruth in chapter three, verse eleven. It's the same word. Now he's saying you're going to have a house that's worthy. They recognize the hand of God too. It makes he makes something out of seemingly nothing. He takes a dismal situation and turns it for a good. Just like he did with Perez in the Judah and Tamar story. We don't have time to go back there. It's, it's an amazing story. It's a 
terrible situation just after the beginning of the Joseph narrative that happens, but it accentuates that the Lord is in control. He turns it for good. Everything for good. The witnesses in the story, they know it and they proclaim it. Part two, the Redeemer is born. Look at verse 13. Look who shows up in verse 13. So Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife. He went into her and the Lord gave her conception and she bore a son. What should, what should stand out to you in this verse is that the Lord acts. He gives them a son. The Lord hasn't been a primary character in this story, but he really has been. Here, the Lord gives. He seems to be in the background acting with some of these just-so-happened kind of events. But here, he steps in and gives a son. The son here is the real Redeemer, not Boaz. Ruth and Boaz were a setup for the one who is coming. Look what the women say in verse 14. Then the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a Redeemer, and may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age for your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. The son is the redeemer. The redeemer, the restorer, the nourisher. Ruth has been more to Naomi than seven sons could have been because she's provided the Redeemer. Ruth has been a channel of God's blessing to Naomi. Naomi is blessed by the Lord. And look at this next verse. Naomi took the child, laid him on her lap, and became his nurse. Naomi takes care of this little boy. Seems to show that death, tragedy, and bitterness of chapter 1 has been turned on its head. Death and bitterness have been turned to birth and joy. Verse 17. Here we go. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. And they named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. What? They name him Obed? That sounds familiar. Obed, the grandfather of King David? Father of Jesse, the father of David. He's royalty. Boaz and Ruth's child is the grandfather of David. And their lineage stretches all the way back 
to a man named Perez. You see that in verse 18? Now these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Aminadab. Aminadab fathered Nashon. And Nashon fathered Salmon. Salmon fathered Boaz. And Boaz fathered Obed. Obed fathered Jesse. And Jesse fathered David. The Lord has been at work this entire time. Three points of application, further application as we think about this. Number one, the Lord turns everything for our good and for his glory. Trust that the Lord is at work, even when you don't see what's going on. Because we really don't know what's going on. We don't have the full picture. Resist the temptation to pretend like you know fully what's happening when you try to analyze the difficulty that you're facing. You're trying to figure out, why is God doing this? Why is God doing that? Why? Let's see, I'm going to try and figure all this out, and this is why it's all happening. You don't really know. God knows. And he's at work, and he's working all things for our good and for his glory. I'll refer you to the book of Job. Why? 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 Like 38 chapters of like, why? 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 And then at 39, or 38, so 37 chapters, 38 starts off something like this. Like 38, 39, 40, and 41 of Job are all about God asking questions like, where were you when I created this whole thing? Who, who are you? So we ask um, uh, oftentimes when faced with difficulty, We ask the question, why, why, why? And God, in Job, says, no, not why. Who? Who? And we turn and worship the Lord. This earthly story of redemption and provision is a small picture of what will happen for all believers. If not in this life, then in the next He turns everything for our good and for his glory. I mean, if we're persecuted, what's the best the enemy can do? The best they can do is kill you. And you're like, that's it? That's all you got? You can kill me? Okay. Don't fear man who can kill the body. Fear God who can kill both body and soul in hell. Number two, let your bitterness be turned to joy. May your bitterness be turned to joy. You might think, why? God didn't give me anything. Really? He's done more for me than I could ever ask or think. Maybe my eyes need to be turned upward. Naomi's misery was real and devastating, and our misery is real and devastating, so weep with those who weep. But don't grow bitter. Don't grow angry with the Lord. He is at work. Weep. Our hearts hurt. 
our hearts hurt for you. We will weep with you. But resist the temptation to be bitter and angry. If you are currently struggling with bitterness, I will pray that your bitterness may be turned to joy because no matter what happens on this earth, a greater joy is coming. And we will see him face to face. Turn your eyes to the goodness of our great God. My God is King. He has done more than we could ever deserve in this. The Father sent His Son to be the Savior of the world. My kids just learned that. 1 John 4, 14. If you are a believer, you have been redeemed by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. Number three, worship the Redeemer. Again, worship the Redeemer. The real Redeemer with a capital R has come. Dare I say, the son of David, David, came as a baby to save his people from their sins. Colossians 2, the mystery that was hiding for ages and generations is now revealed. Christ, the Messiah, has come. And we get Him, or better, He gets us. The mystery is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Colossians 2. Jesus, the Redeemer, He saves by dying on that bloody cross for our sins. He bears the wrath of God. That's our King. That's our King who hung on a cross. That's my God, and my God is King. Trust in Him. Place your faith in Him. Cry out to the Son of David to have mercy on you, like blind Bartimaeus, because your blindness is a spiritual blindness that we heard this morning. Your eyes need to be opened. If you're not a follower of Christ, your eyes need to be opened. Or as 2 Corinthians chapter 3, as we heard in our Friday night Bible study, you need Christ to remove the veil. Call on Him to have mercy on you. Because of your sin, you deserve eternity in hell. But Christ offers relationship with Himself. Humble yourself, submit to Christ, follow Him. Let's pray. Lord, we're so overwhelmed by this story and we're overwhelmed with the, um, the greatness of our God and King. Our ruler who knows all things and has all things under control. And here we are tempted to think that we know the future. As if we know how you work. Will you, will you help us to better trust you during times of difficulty and during times of plenty? 
And Lord, those of us who face are facing the temptation towards bitterness, towards anger towards God, may we repent and believe and place our trust in you. Lord, help us to be a people who are fully trusting in the sovereignty of God and the control of of you, your control over us. May we be a people who are worshipers of you, worshipers of the real Redeemer. Thank you for saving us. Thank you for opening our blind eyes. Thank you for removing the veil so that we would be followers of you. Lord, we love you, and we thank you for how you've worked in our lives through this book of Ruth. We ask for your grace. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.